I'd be remiss if I didn't release a special episode of somebody who's meant a lot to me and was an inspiration in my life and my career growing up and made me want to create the kind of holy shit moments that he did. And although I've never come close to the kind of unbelievable impact that this man has had on the business, I can still dream and aspire to try to create and work with people who can make a fraction of the kind of difference that he made in the world. And I'm talking about Norman Lear, who we lost this past week at the tender age of 101 years old. Can you imagine living over a century and still working till the end, still fighting to create things that inspire and impact people? After you've created all in the family and one day at a time and good times, Sanford and Son, Maud, the Jeffersons, and of course, all in the family. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it and being there with Norman in my office. It was one of the greatest moments and days of my life in this business. I will never forget that day. I will never forget this interview. But most of all, I'll never forget the man and how he inspired me in my personal and professional life. And I'm so grateful to have met him and spent time with him. So I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Norman Lear. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, subscribing, and passing on these podcasts. I'm very grateful knowing that I got to share my experience with all in the family, not just with you, the audience, but with the man that created it, fought for it, got it on the air, and wrote these magical episodes, Norman Lear. I'm so touched by that and informed by it. You know, I am living proof that uh, if you're paying attention, there's more to learn, so much more to learn than we all think we know. I can't tell you what a learning experience just the last few weeks have been for me. Something, this entire little story and the way you remember it and the way you articulate it. I I get what it did for you, what it meant for you. We all do this for each other. It's It's capturing the knowledge that we make good moments for each other, all of us. This is in a professional situation. It's, you know, it's it's uh, larger than life in a sense. 
three weeks ago, uh, the TV Academy and the hip hop group. Uh, I can't remember where, just a couple of guys out of the hip hop community in New York, but major guys, decided uh, they would do an evening with Newman Lear. And the tagline was, what do a 92-year-old Jew and the world of hip-hop have in common? John Stewart used to say that the black people have their troubles, the Jews have the same troubles. The only difference was between the both groups, the blacks learned how to put it to music. And the Jews' comedy. Well, they both... <laughs> on the, on, this was at the Montalban Theater. They sold out in four hours several months ago. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew I was coming to the theater for this event. And uh, Touré, you know, Touré moderated he was fabulous. Common was there, but right before he won the uh, Oscar, I don't. This is not me. I've I've never heard this voice before. <laughs> uh, and uh, the executive from Def Jam, Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons was there. Uh, it, it was seven major uh, African American performers and so forth. And they were all talking about what moments, not just good times or the Jeffersons, but certain moments in certain episodes meant to them. And son of a gun. I, you know, I've heard it through the years. I got to tell you, Mr. Lear, this happened, you know. But I really got it. And the way the audience got it, because the audience got into it too, I, I, I saw so clearly how we go through life making moments for other people that we don't understand we did or remember we did or nobody has helped us understand how important just moment-to-moment -moment interaction with others is to them, let alone yourself. Well, I think, you know, that con that convention or where you went was really important because Russell Simmons is very outspoken about how television has shut out and not captured the African-American voice. And he was quoted just recently in an article mm -hmm. saying that you were the last person in television history to capture the voice of the African-American people and the culture on television. He said it's sad that it had to happen 30 years ago and it can't happen today we're talking about doing something together that'd be awesome so there's so many things to cover but your book was amazing because i've been riveted by this book even this i get to experience i've been listening to it on tape i've been reading it and it's incredible i can quote you things from here that you don't even remember having uh, heard you quote a number of things from uh, way back i have no doubt of it so what i'd like to do is i'd like to give you the proper introduction but what i'm going to do it's very unusual I'm actually going to allow you to give your own introduction through my words so this is a passage from Norman Lear's book that you have to get if you do anything after listening to this podcast or any podcast, you have to get this book. Even this I get to experience. You can't live without this book. It has everything you need. It's inspirational. <laughs> it tells all the great stories. It's amazing. But I am going to introduce Norman Lear as Norman Lear from a passage from his book. 
in my 90 plus years, I've lived a multitude of lives. There was that early life with my parents and relatives, a life as a kid with my blood buddies, Herbie Lerner and Schwartz twins, a life in high school, zeroing in on the humor in our existence, a life in college cut short by World War II, a life as a crew member in a B-17 bomber flying 52 missions over Europe. A life in the world of entertainment with sub-lives in television, radio, movies, and music. A life as a political activist. Life in philanthropy. A late starting life as a spiritual seeker. Three lives as a husband, six as a father, with my youngest born 48 years after my eldest, and four as a grandfather. In the course of all these lives, I had a front row seat at the birth of television. Wrote, produced, created, or developed more than a hundred shows. Had nine on the air at the same time. Finished one season with three of the top four. Another with five of the top nine. Hosted Saturday Night Live. Wrote, directed, produced, executive produced, or financed more than a dozen major films. Before normalization, led an entourage of Hollywood writers and producers on a three-week tour of China. Founded several cause-oriented national organizations, including the 300,000-member liberal advocacy group People for the American Way. Was told by the New York Times that I changed the face of television. Was labeled the number one enemy of the American family by Jerry Falwell. <laughs> was warned by Pat Robertson that my arms were too short to box with God. Made it onto Richard Nixon's enemies list. Was presented with the National Medal of the Arts by President Clinton. Purchased an original copy of the Declaration of Independence and toured it for 10 years in all 50 states. Was ranked by Entertainment Weekly 14th among the 100 greatest entertainers of the century. 29 places ahead of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> Ran the Olympic torch in the 2002 Winter Olympics. Blew a fortune in a series of bad investments and failing businesses and reached a point where I was advised that we might even have to sell our home. And in my own words, a man who's been nominated for 14 Emmy Awards and won four of them. A man who... At the height of his career, over 130 million people watched his television shows each week, which is more than the greatest viewed Super Bowl of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, <laughs> the legend, the icon, my hero, Norman Lear. What a guy. <laughs> You didn't tell the rest of the story because you're probably kind enough to leave it to me. Yes. I blew that fortune. Had, had a son-in-law in New York who called me because he knew I had a meeting, a certain meeting at a certain time, at which I learned uh, what, uh, what you just heard. And uh, he said, how did it go? I told him, you know, we might have to sell our house. Might We have a small place in Vermont, might have to go to Vermont. Uh, and he said, how do you feel? I said, I feel terrible, but running through my mind is uh, this thought. He, he said, what? I said, even this I get to experience. So the next morning at 7.30 in the morning, I get a phone call. He's calling me from New York, and he says, uh, 
you got to promise me something. I said, what? He said, I heard you say once or twice that you wish to be cremated. You've got to promise me that we can bury you. I said, why? He said, because someday I want to take your children, my grandchildren, to a stone that reads, even this I get to experience. <laughs> so that's where I got the title of the book. It's fantastic. But that's, but that's the way I feel. Look at, look at this. Um, yeah, I'm hearing this lovely introduction. Uh, these words, your words, are going to get to I don't know how many people, how many people are listening to this. Uh, millions have downloaded these podcasts. I never got millions of people. And even this I get to experience with this voice even i've never had this voice before let me tell you way. something i don't know what's going on in my your throat. voice if i could be like one one millionth as successful as you with the voice i have i'll take it i don't think you understand success well i'm not going to wear the fishing hat success has nothing to do with the bullshit of how one climbs in a society in medicine science media comedy anything it has to do with how one spends one moments and how one enjoys oneself and from the smile on your face and your attitude all together if you haven't had a good time in this life I'd be surprised well you can kill me after this interview because I'm having a great time and it just started <laughs> I think the most important thing for people to understand about you and anybody who's successful is what gets them there, what drives them there, what brings them there. And I, you know, I want you to talk a little bit about how you grew up and how your dad was with you and how your mom was, because people don't realize this. They don't realize that really successful people have a hole blown through them early on in life. Hmm. And they're constantly trying to fill the hole. And a lot of great artists fill the hole through their writing, through their entertainment, through comedy to take away the pain. So could you tell our audience how you grew up a little bit and, 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 and what you were going up against and how that inspired you to become the great comedy person you are in this world? Well, <laughs> uh, my father went to prison when I was nine years old. I adored the guy. They, my father, uh, like Willie Loman, Arthur Miller's uh, Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman, my father, his expression was, I could sell shit on a stick for lollipops. <laughs> and uh, he couldn't really. He wasn't that good a salesman. I watched him fail time and again. But he didn't know it. And, uh, and he went out. Uh, with a uh, smile and a shoe shine every day and did bad things, kited checks, uh, wrote other people's checks, that means, lied, cheated, sold some phony bonds, went to prison for three years. But I loved him. It's very difficult for me even now because uh, the, the, the worst word I wish to use or anything to describe him was is scoundrel. <laughs> Uh, and he cheated, lied, stole, did all of those things and wasn't around for me, obviously, those three years, but through life also. But those are critical years from and 9 to 12. Yes. When, uh, at one point before he went away, we made a crystal set together, crystal radio set together, 
when he was gone, I was fooling with my little crystal radio set with the headsets, uh, earphones, and I caught a signal, and it was a priest from Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, his name was Father Coglin, and he was a vicious anti-Semitic, uh, anti-New Deal, FDR, uh, kind of interested in what was happening in Germany. This was early before we knew everything that was happening in Germany. He had good things to say about this Nazi stuff that he was reading about, hearing about, and scared the hell out of me. Now, important to remember or to know that in those years when I was a boy, we had civics classes in school. So I knew about the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment. I knew that despite the fact that I was born to a Jewish couple, I was equal under the law and in God's uh, view, according to all of the things I myself read in civics class, while Father Coughlin scared me, I had the benefit of understanding that in this country, I had those protections. I never lost that. I fell in love with the notion of the founders, or the rather the fathers of the founders of the of the country, the fathers of the country. And uh, there was my father, not my real father, but one of the founders of the country. So that always stayed with me. I did get to college for a year despite the depression and despite the war, and I won a scholarship to get there. But I won the scholarship by a professor. That was for Emerson College, right? Yes. That was an RA at Miles Standish Hall, the one that looks like the Flatiron Building right down by Emerson? Yes, yes, yes. When I coined the expression, it's a small world, that's the kind of thing I had in mind. (laughs) Famous Boston Uh, comedian Stephen Wright said, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. Uh, oh, God, he was funny. He yeah. was funny. Uh, oh, what won me the scholarship, I enlisted in a in the first American Legion oratorical contest. And my subject was the Constitution and me. And what I talked about was those provisions in the Constitution that protected the black guy, the Asian, the, you know, I don't know if I was wise enough to think about the homosexual, the lesbian, the so forth, but certainly with the race and religious issues. Uh, and there I was protected by my the promises my country made to me and to everybody else. So that stayed with me. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far 
that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So how does that translate? So we got that that part of you, which is very evident in your career and your philanthropic efforts. Right. That's there. So how does that pain from your family and your dad and then going to school and learning about this, how does that translate into a career in comedy? Were you always thinking, like, I've got to be in the comedy business? Like, what was the first inspiration that you ever saw or felt or went to a show that said, I got to be in this business? Oh, I got. I don't know the. I got to be in this business part. Maybe, I'll, maybe I think that happened to me. But when my father was sent away, newspapers were lying around the house with him manacled to a detective coming down the steps of the city hall. It was a terrible scene. People were in the house buying furniture. My mother's, my father's, our furniture, because my mother was selling because we were moving. It turned out I was going to be sent to uh, live with an uncle, an uncle, another uncle, and finally my grandparents. My mother took my younger sister, and she disappeared. I don't know where the hell they were. In that moment, somebody put his hands on my shoulder, some older person, and said, well, Norman, you're the man of the house now. And as I write in the book, that had to be the moment when I, I understood the foolishness of the human condition. My father, this has happened to me. I'm nine years old. They're selling the furniture. My mother's running away. I'm going to an uncle. Uh, there's some cloth tape I was holding in my hand that said, Norman Emilia, Norman Emilia, which my mother was going to sew into some clothes because I was going to camp for the first time. Now, I wasn't going to camp. I had only had that roll of tape. And I'm the man of the house. You know, holy shit. If anything... If anything can teach you, you know, that this comedy in the worst of situations, that's the moment where I think I had to have learned it. So in high school, I was notes to you from King Lear. Uh, I was the, I ran, wrote the comedy. Uh, I wrote the Class Night play, which was a comedy. I wasn't thinking of myself as a comedy writer. I fell in love with my Uncle Jack. He used to flick me a quarter. He was the only uncle I had who ever flicked me a quarter. He became my role model. He was a press agent. I didn't know, A, what a press agent did, including the fact that what he did mostly was write funny things for clients to appear in columns. So that's what I became after the war, first thing I did. And, uh, and that took me to writing. I, I did a lot of writing. 
tell me the first time you ever wrote anything where you said to yourself or something was produced or something happened where you said, I'm never going to do any other job again. I am done with whatever shitty jobs I did in the past. I am now a writer and producer, and this is what I do. It came in steps. The first step was uh, in Foggia, Italy, from which I flew those missions, I stood over a a uh, a printer, an Italian guy, and picked letter by letter uh, on this linotype machine he had and did a one-page uh, announcement. Within some months, uh, the war would be over. I would be... Uh, out of the army, and I was ready for a a place in the world of publicity, of press, of, and I knew I got a job uh, out of that letter that my uncle Jack sent to a group of um, press houses, and uh, and then I learned when I came to work that I was going to write comedy because I was going to write amusing things for my clients. One of the things I wrote. There were two major people. Uh, this young group, well, I don't know how old is your audience. Oh, they Morris Hart was a great uh, comedy writer. Uh, what was his name again? Morris Hart. Yeah, okay. And uh, his, he worked with George S. Kaufman. Kaufman and Hart were huge uh, playwrights. He was, uh, we, he was a client. Kitty Carlisle was a great actress and comedian and uh, did a lot of television. I remember her from What's My Line. From What's My Line. She was a major person on What's My Line. They didn't know each other, but they were clients. I wrote, uh, uh, and Dorothy Kilgallen, who was a, had a big column in the New York Journal American, which reminds me there was a time there were eight, count them, eight newspapers in New York. I wrote, she published, Kitty Carlisle gifted Moss Hart with a pocket flask measured to his hip while he napped. <laughs> Nothing could have been more bullshit. She printed it, though, and must have had a friend or somebody who said to her, what the hell is that? So she called George Ross, my boss, and wished me fired. Instead of firing me, I was making $40 a week. He docked me five. I was now making $35 a week. Some weeks later, uh, <laughs> still working for George Ross, we had a, uh, a show on Broadway called Are You With It? It was a... Uh, we don't see many reviews now. This was sketches and comedy and dances and so forth. No storyline, a review. One of the acts in uh, the show was Buster Shaver and his midgets. So I wrote in the, the same Dorothy Gilgallen printed, Buster Shaver and his midgets seen shopping Fifth Avenue. He on foot, she on a St. Bernard. <laughs> I was fired. <laughs> my wife, I was married. My wife was pregnant. We moved back to uh, Hartford uh, to have the baby. And then from there, uh, moved to California. And uh, 
I had a cousin, Elaine, who was married to a fellow, Ed Simmons. They were in California. They were broke, had one child, as we did. And, uh, and he wanted to be a comedy writer. Well, that's when I realized what I had been doing was writing a kind of comedy. Got it. And so he and I started, we, had, we took an office together, $6 a month. A little room over a delicatessen. This was around and, 1950, right? This is yes. when you. This is right before you got your first gig on the Ford, Ford Star, Star Review, Review with Jack Haley, the yes. man who played the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. Right. I did my research, and so you. That's that was, why I think I'm talking too much, and you should get in here with some guys. Oh, believe me, I'm going to get in there. People say I talk too much. Now I'm talking too little. This is good. I, this is a good sign. Right. I'm, I'm in balance. There's balance here. So okay, you're on that show, and obviously you're doing really, really well on that show because a comedy team who was very big at the time saw the show and said saw these great sketches being written for a guy who really wasn't a great comedy guy and said get me those writers and if you're out there listening that's how you know you're doing great work is if somebody says get me those people well there was something else going on that i've realized in writing the book and thinking about this as much as i have television was really new Jack Haley's Ford Star Review was one of the first shows to play on both coasts, not at the same time because there was no coaxial cable. So hours or weeks or days later it played. We wrote the first Jack Haley's Star Review, and I have to picture this. There was a lot of radio. There were a lot of writers that wrote for Jack Benny and Fred Allen and Red Skelton and Fibber McGee and Molly in radio. They were great comedy writers. We wrote this television show. So when somebody wanted a comedy writer who writes for television, we were the only television writers around. So when Martin, they did see a sketch that they liked, and um, Jerry knew he could do better than Jack Haley or funnier than Jack Haley. But we were also television comedy writers. It was like we had been given a medal we didn't earn. You were given a medal you didn't. It, was, it you, was magic and great luck. But I'm sure you weren't the only two writers working on the show. No. We so hired, there were so there were other writers, uh, and they we Jer hired two writers who were Danny and Doc. They were known as, and they were Danny and Doc Simon. The guy who was called Doc was Neil Simon, who became the great. American playwright. Which you have many stories about him, which we're going to get to. So take us through how you got to meet Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin and tell me about the dynamic, any kind of story you can that uh, summarizes your relationship with them, how they were with each other, who wore the pants in the family, and basically how that show came about with you and your relationship with them. That's a lot. I'll go now for six and a half minutes. <laughs> I figure if I don't talk that much, I might as well get into the question. Um, Jerry Lewis was uh, the business. I mean, Jerry Lewis managed the team. I mean, they had a manager, of course, and an agent and some were major people. But, uh, but Jerry was the guy who decided. Dean was the treasure of treasures. He was as talented as he could be. He was extremely funny, but he behaved like he didn't give a damn. Uh, and Jerry made all the decisions. Whatever they did, Jerry kind of put together. Jerry, in the course of uh, the years, 
this happens to comics. They become sometimes they become all knowing. When Bud and I were fed up after three years, it was because uh, Bud Yorkin. No, Ed Simmons. I Ed Simmons, I'm sorry. Ed Simmons. I Bud Yorkin. I met Bud Yorkin on the uh, Martin and Lewis shows because Bud Yorkin. Jack Smite, these are names that became very well known. Uh, John Rich and Arthur Penn were the four stage managers on the Colgate Comedy Hour. And they all became uh, famous directors. This is fascinating stuff, and I'm mesmerized I'm by the stuff you're glad. talking about. It's amazing. So you work on that show for a while, and then you go on and you work with Martha Ray for a couple of years, and then George Goble on the Tennessee Ernie Ford show, and then you team with Bud no, York. Those are two different shows, George Goble and Tennessee Ernie Ford. Uh, but then you team with Bud York and the form Tandem Productions in 1958, and yes. and he was doing really, really well at the time, wasn't he? And you weren't... He had a huge success he did a uh, special with Fred Astaire that uh, he won uh, three Emmys uh, on the Fred Astaire special and uh, so when we made a deal at Paramount we were riding in on his horse I'm not discounting what you did but at that point in time it could be argued that Bud Yorkin's stock was higher than your stock oh there's no question why we, did he want to become a I partner say. with you when I say we rode in on his, uh, but like Jerry ran that, uh, yeah, to some, uh, I was by far the more aggressive in our relationship. We, we were great friends. We're good friends to this day. Great friends to this day. And we built a terrific company, Tandem Productions. But what's interesting but, is you're starting off with musical variety specials. Yeah. And, and what happens, as you know, with anything, anything you do out there, anybody listening, when you do something that's successful, like when Jim Carrey does his first movie, Ace Ventura, and he's this wild, crazy guy, and it makes hundreds of millions of dollars, well, what happens? People want Jim Carrey to do that again and again and again. So what's fascinating is you were in this world of musical specials or these variety specials that people wanted you for because they were so successful, yet that wasn't your lane. Your lane was wanting to do other things. So how did you figure out a way to change the listening and get television you know, to give you the chance to do other things? In those musical variety shows, I've learned I was on my lane, in my lane. Uh, on the very first Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis Colgate Comedy Hour, we did a sketch. It was at a time when te when the motion picture exhibitors were deeply afraid of television because they thought their audience in theaters was disappearing. So they had a giant campaign. They put tens of millions of dollars into a campaign. Movies are better than ever. We did our first sketch was a satire of that movies are better than ever. So the scene was a motion picture, the, the uh, sidewalk of motion picture theater outside box office. Marilyn Monroe, uh, Maxwell was a delicious, hot as could be singer at the time. 
So she was a guest star on the show. She played uh, an usher. I never uh, called a woman delicious before, but I'm going to try that. It's a good word. Does it work? It's, uh, I don't know. You have two, three women uh, listening here. Does it work, women? I'll see you at the trial. <laughs> uh, in this climate, you could. <laughs> Dean Martin played the manager who bullied uh, to get people in. Jerry was a kid coming along, bouncing a ball, carry on as you might imagine Jerry would. And Dean roughhousing him, Marilyn Maxwell trying to seduce him to get him into the theater so they had a customer. That was the sketch. I was very serious about that piece of satire. Jerry Lewis did everything he could, in my opinion, that, that took the sketch out of being the serious notion it was. He was hilarious. He was the reason the show was a, the giant success. I was altogether wrong about how funny everything was because I was disappointed that my point of view wasn't being my agent after the show was telling me how out of, out of my mind I was. You know, this would be the talk of the country that saw it the next morning, and indeed it was. We spent three years with with Jerry. But my point of it all was there was something in mind more serious than just the fun. It had a point of view. It got across. I was altogether wrong about that, too, that it might not get across because Jerry clowned so much because three, four weeks later, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis had to take out an ad. Their management and, and, and agent insisted, apologizing to the exhibitors for the sketch. That's how serious, seriously it was taken. How did you feel when you saw that ad? I, it took a few weeks to make the point, but I thought my point, I didn't know. It took, it took a few weeks, I should say, for me to understand that it, it was there, inherent in the sketch. And so that was the first point in your career where you were doing things as a writer and producer that were pushing the envelope, and you saw well, the I didn't reaction. think it was pushing the envelope. It was serious. It was you know, a piece of comedy that had a point of view. I feel like uh, I'm asking Sinatra to sing New York, New York. I'll tell you my Sinatra story. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I got him down here. I'm, 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 I'm into Sinatra. I got it. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same you pick your own poison dig your own grave down in the valley Fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.